welcome to the first episode of the Final Word podcast. My name's Lewis Wren. I'm Mike Whiting. And this is a podcast about writing. Um, today we're going to be talking about prose. Yeah. Today we've got an interview with Horatio Clare, who's a travel journalist and a children's author. We've also got a story from Christy Smith, who's one of the, our fellow students on the creative writing course here at JMU. And we're also going to be discussing Disappearances by KJR. And that won the 2016 BBC National Short Story Award. So we're going to be going into some detail with that. And we're also going to talk about some of our favourite short stories. So, as I said, we're going to be talking about Disappearances by KJ Orr. And as I said in the intro, this won the National Short Story Award, the BBC National Short Story Award in 2016. And if you don't know anything about that, it is a story award held annually by the BBC in association with the Book Trust. They take... Uh, open entries as long as you've been published is that right yeah you have to have you have to have been published in a frequent uh, publication yeah. so not like an anthology something that gets published regularly yeah uh, so there are rules and regulations to submitting entries towards it but there was like 500 entries i think yeah this just year. just looking here and it's 478 that's close yeah so and it's um the whittled down blind so they have no idea who's written what oh i didn't know that that's yeah cool. yeah so just reading that and the five shortlist um Shortlisted stories were all written by women, so you know that's that's cool because Hilary Mantel was shortlisted, and I didn't realize. I thought because they'd know she wrote that, they'd be like, "Oh, it's Hilary Mantel. This is going to be great." Mm. Um, But they didn't know it was her. No, yeah, it's all blind judged. That's good. I like that. Which is obviously a much better way of doing it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's great. Yeah. So the prizes are: it's fifteen thousand pounds to the winner, three thousand pounds to the runner up, Mm -hmm. and then five hundred pounds to the other three shortlisted stories. Okay. And you introduced this story to me originally, so yeah. why? Okay, why well, did you inflict this story upon me? Because it it validated me as a writer, Mike. Right, okay, I'm insecure. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, but, off well with okay. the first podcast. <laughs> Basically, uh, that's true. That's actually true. I I read it and when I finished reading it, because it's so simply written and it's pretty short, like three and a half thousand yeah. words, something like that. Um, I just I, I was like okay it's it's a ta- the I, this can be done with some work if you have a good idea and you organize your thoughts well and you put it, if you can get it down on paper well you can write a good story without a huge vocabulary without um, I don't I it just it kind of left me thinking that the simplicity is what appealed to you it was it was a simplicity and that's what makes the story as well it's yeah. not just the fact that I thought oh I can write this it was <laughs> it was it was the fact that it's simply done but you get a lot of color from it which yeah. I think was one of your do you have a problem with that? Well, I mean, <laughs> I I had issues with this story. Um, we should probably talk about the plot briefly first. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll, the, first, okay, the opening, uh, the opening line, line, because, yeah. you know, that's fun. The opening line is, <laughs> the beginning is simple enough. I find myself in the park due to a sudden and overwhelming urge to go to the museum. It's basically about... The beginning a, is simple enough. It is pretty simple. Yeah. It, it's about... A retired plastic surgeon who lives in Buenos Aires, yep. Argentina. Yes, and he's he's from England. He's in no, 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 he's Argentinian. See, I was confused by this as well, but I did a bit of a closer read on it. He's Argentinian, studied in Oxford, but moved but moved back okay. to Buenos Aires. Basically, he's he's from wealth, but his family have kind of shunned him because he, yeah, yeah, he, he, he took a uh, unworthy. Yes, he went, he went to be a plastic surgeon and his family weren't too keen on that, so he's he's lived a life separate from his family. Yeah. And it's basic, it's a really simple story. You find all this information out, but basically what he does is he's retired, he's kind of feels a little bit lost, 
um, and he goes to a museum every morning, which he kind of knows is going to be closed. Yeah, well, the, 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 that's the beginning is simple enough. He goes to the museum and it's closed, so he takes a wander around and finds this cafe where there's a young waitress. And so he makes a routine out of going to the closed museum every morning and going to the cafe yeah. instead. It's almost like an excuse for himself. Yeah. And he befriends this waitress and he gets to learn um, about her as the story progresses. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's this beautiful ending to it as well, but we'll go into that yeah. in a bit. Uh, but yeah, your your problems with it, sorry. Yeah, okay, now, so... Now, now we know. Yeah, my, my main issue is... is that nothing really happens. Okay, you're going to have to elaborate on that, because... Well, there's no... I mean, I don't know how else to say it. There's no real plot apart from old man goes to cafe, falls in love okay. with waitress, okay, wh- made, gets made to look like an arsehole. Just, cl- <laughs> just to clarify for anyone who hasn't read it, it's... It's it's got I, I would it's, it's got no plot. Recommend reading it. Yeah, it's got no plot in the way that the catcher in the rye has no plot. So it's it's yeah. an internal plot. It's, it's a day in the life of Yeah, it's an internal story. plot which I I love these stories which is probably why I'm a bit biased. Um and I um I don't know I it, that's probably why I I liked it so much whereas with you you want something to happen. Well, is it, don't, don't don't paint me with that brush. I don't mind internal stories as long as they're done well. Would you have preferred it more if he the museum was closed? So he's like, I know what I can do, and he walked into a bank. Yeah, okay. Held up the bank. Uh, hilarious. <laughs> because because I like genre fiction, apparently that makes me no, less I, intelligent. And I wasn't saying I, you're less intelligent. I was saying you like guns and people. You like you like a story I where like, someone gets I shot. I like genre fiction. Yeah, but that's not all that I'm about. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, okay, so that, that's that's my main problem with it. There's. There's no real driving plot. It is just a case of, you know. Yeah, I, I, I can a char- It's a character study, and I enjoy character studies. Didn't yeah. enjoy this one. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, okay, so... We, let's, let's talk about the ending, because the ending is... We both agree that the ending's where it's, pretty where good. Where it's saved. I can see how it got on the shortlist because of the ending. This is one, yeah, this is one thing we could... Re- the ending is, it just starts with, it's like a break. We... The, this little narrative's finished yeah. and then it's kind of separate from the story but also everything uh, it says pay attention this is important yeah um, and it it goes into detailed description goes in th- yeah so throughout at the beginning of the story we get a very vague description of this waitress you know she's wearing an apron she's got a white shirt on and that's about it we don't really see her face which is in contrast to uh, the narrator some of his old clients come up and we get detailed descriptions of the work he's done on their faces, making them look the vision of beauty that they want, you know, perfection. Mm -hmm. Then at the very end, we get this long 500 word or so description of the waitress and it's about her imperfections and how that makes her beautiful. Yeah, and and it's incredibly effective. Yeah. Uh, It's, it's, it, okay, what we're saying about the short story in general, any short story, any effective short story is, is one where it, it doesn't spoon feed you anything, but you kind of have to pull the threads for yourself. Yeah. And the ones that the ones that do the best work, which I think it really does here, is you yourself come to the conclusion. You yourself work out what the character's feeling, how he his mindset, mm-hmm. his or her mindset. Well, it's the show don't tell. Yeah, it is. It's show don't tell. And the ones that do it best are the ones where you f- you work it out just towards the end. Uh, and See, yeah. It, it leaves you with that. I understand that, but. It feels a little gimmicky, isn't the right word, but along those lines of 
saving all this amazing description until the end, it feels, to, and I know it is, it feels very thought out. Okay. It doesn't feel authentic. Okay. No, fair enough. I get where you're coming from. I, I, I've never thought about it like this because we, we read different things, so I guess we read stories differently. Yeah. So I'd never even considered that. I just read it as one thing and I, I thought it was well put together. But considering it's like three and a half thousand words, the, she does do a lot. She definitely does. I mean, it's, you know, it got some rave reviews by the, uh, <laughs> by the judges. Uh, Kai Miller, uh, one of the authors, one of the judges and also an author, she said, it's a near perfect example of how the short story works. A small world that's perfectly observed. And I will, I'll concede that it is perfectly observed, this small world. But I don't know if I want to observe it. That's my issue. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, I agree with that. Uh, I think it's it's a very well put together story. Yeah, it really is. And but you know, I would just like to point out. I mean, I've been doing some research here. Oh, have you now? I have. And apparently, the uh, the judging panel had some issues about who was going to win. So. So you think that there's a couple on your side here who were like, no. I mean, it's possible. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's never going to be unanimous. I don't think. No, with, no, no. With art in general yeah. or any kind of creative. It's all subjective. Yeah. Uh, so, on on this on this topic or on this, uh, we've got our own short stories that are just just before we move on. I just okay. I just like to point out the runner up, um, Claire Louise Bennett. Her story is called Morning, Noon, and Night. Both her and KJ Or they're both debut authors. Okay, what well, they've got collections coming out both, this year. Both got um, short story collections came out last year. Uh, Claire Louise Bennett's is called Pond, and KJ Or's was called Lightbox. Mm-hmm. And that that's quite impressive, I do have to say. I mean, that is something for budding writers to think about. Entering competitions Oh yeah, is a really great way of getting your name out there, for one thing. Yeah, because you know, make a little bit of cash money. I know, 15000 for a writer. Yeah. A short story writer is like winning the lottery. Yeah, she, well, KJ Orr, in this interview, found it. She said that it's going to help her write what she wants to write next. You know, this is a little bit of a buffer. Yeah. She, it gives her some time to write whatever it is she wants to do next, whether it's a novel or whatever. Yeah, no, I uh, I think anyone who's... Don't let this put you off the fact that you have to be published for the BBC one because there's no. thousands of writing um, competitions but also uh, anthologies, magazines, yep. anything who yep. want submissions. They want them, they want to read your stories. If, so. you, if you look hard enough, you'll find somewhere to oh, submit. Oh, definitely. Even if, even if you're like really specific genres, so yeah. you write like dystopian fantasy yeah. horror so it, you know if you if you're not like Lewis and you write and you like writing stuff that people enjoy oh. then <laughs> you can uh, <laughs> wow. you know stuff that you know these elites out there yeah no, no I'm joking um, but you know there's a lot of horror science fiction crime yeah. real good genre magazines out there that want submissions and once you've got a submission, that really is a doorway into oh, yeah, getting yeah. yourself out there. I mean, that's that's your requirement for applying for the BBC short story award, and I'm sure it's probably the requirement for others. And, yeah. you know, adds to your portfolio as well, which is always helpful. Oh, yeah, because yeah. we're on the creative writing course here, and mm-hmm. we're, this, we're third years, we're going to go out to the, the scary world of the work afterwards. Big old world. I know, and this is this is the kind of thing we need to be thinking about. Yeah. yeah, thinking about at the very least. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, on to our... We have our own favourite stories, yeah. and we've 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 brought stuff to discuss them. And um, I'll start with you. 
So we're starting with your story, which is... Until Gwen, inspired by Dennis Lehane. Okay, what else has uh, Dennis Lehane done for people well, who don't know? He's written 12 novels, and um, to be honest, you'll have, you'll know his stuff, but you might not know his name. Okay. So he's written 12 novels. Um, a lot of them filmed. Adam. A lot of them have been adapted, yeah. There's Gone Baby Gone, which was directed by Ben Affleck, Affleck yeah. starring Casey Affleck. Uh, Mystic River, directed by Clint Eastwood. Nice. Um, Live by Night, which is one of his more recent ones, that's just been adapted by Ben Affleck, coming out twenty seventeen sometime. Um, he's a, he wrote all of those adaptation adaptations. I think he's written on The Wire as well on the TV show, which is watch it, just watch, just the watch wire. it, go and and watch it. Yeah, I mean we don't need to say anything <laughs> other than that. It's the greatest TV show ever made. <laughs> it's pretty good. It's pretty no, good. It, the, that, that's just <laughs> sorry, I was underselling it. It's it's the greatest TV show ever made. Well, are you saying it's that the, in a mocking way? It really is. It's the best written TV show, I think. It's up there. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, there's a lot of good wow. TV out there. Wow. Right, we'll not get into this. This is. No. That, that, <laughs> we'll be here for like two that's hours. That's a different yeah, podcast. Yeah, we'll be here for two hours. Uh, yeah, he's from Boston, and um, most of his stories are set in Boston. The one I'm talking about in particular, Until Grand, that isn't. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's. Yeah, it's brilliant. Um, so tell us a bit about your story, Until Gwen, then. Until Gwen, okay. So it's about a young man named Bobby who's just been released from prison, uh, meets up with his dad, who's a complete scumbag, con man, thief, murderer, mm. bad dude all around. And uh, he's supposed to be, you know, you're out of prison, I'll show you a good time, catch up, all that good stuff. But he's got an ulterior motive. Um, one of the interesting things about Until Gwen is that it's written in a sec- second person narrative. So okay. I'll just um, read the first line. Yeah, please which do. Which I'll just say, if you don't like this first line, then I, I don't know what's wrong with it. It's just it's yeah, you so... Can't be, you can't be friends with Mike if no, you don't yeah, like you this can't. first line. Okay. Your father picks you up from prison in a stolen Dodge Neon with an eight ball of coke in the glove compartment and a hooker named Mandy in the back seat. That's... <laughs> It's, it's, it's an gripping. amazing hook. Yeah, it's it gripping, really to say the very least. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the best first sentences I think I've ever, I've, yeah. I've, so far, I've read from a story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the reason I just enjoy it, I mean, there's a lot of stuff, you know, it's it, it's very classic in some ways. You know, it's a crime story. There's twists and turns, backstabbing, double crosses, you know, all that good, you know, um, generic conventions yeah. that you expect from a crime story. But at the same time, it does a little twist. It plays with the memory of the main character, the second-person narrative, which is very, very uncommon, I think it's fair to say. Yeah. And it it can be done very distractingly and not work. But, but in this case, this kind of story is, it works yeah. brilliantly. I think the, the second-person narrative works with the, the main character has some form of amnesia. Okay. So it sort of ties in with the not knowing who... He is, you know, so you. I, I just think that works yeah. really well. And what I like about Lehane is his... He looks at things a little bit differently than other crime writers, I feel. I mean, crime fiction is a wide field and there's a lot of crap out there. <laughs> there really, really is. 
Um, and it's very, you know, it's, it's like I said, it's like what you do get from Until Gwen, you know, it's very fast-paced, you know, guns, car chases, sexy women, all that good stuff. Like Raymond Chandler, like the originators of the genre, you know, stuff that you'd expect. And that's fine. You know, people enjoy that. That's yeah, great. But that's just the surface. That's the surface. I mean, Lehane goes a little bit further. You know, he looks at why these things happen. Why Why does his dad treat him the way he does, you know? Yeah. And he looks at, um, in Shutter Island, he looks at, you know, mental illness and how that affects things, you know? Mm-hmm. And he, he just goes a little bit deeper than someone like, say, Lee Child. Okay. Now, Lee Child's very successful author. He wrote the Jack Reacher series. Yeah. Um, you know, he's very successful. His books are enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting for the big book. <laughs> the big book. But he writes airport fiction, I would say. Yeah. You know, you pick up a book. It's great for the plane, the beach, and it doesn't matter if you leave it in there. <laughs> you launch it into the ocean at the yeah. end of your holiday. And then <laughs> so long, farewell. <laughs> I've got to go home now. You know. Yeah, it's, 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 is it just... Uh, like standard bog standard look and short entertainment yeah and you then... don't get you don't get uh truth out of it which is what you should really be seeking in fiction you know in truth, any story yeah truthy truth of character situation whatever that's what's missing from a lot of bog standard crime fiction and the hand goes deeper and he finds the truth in these characters with all this other crazy stuff with going all on, the yeah. other crazy stuff going on around it yeah, yeah, that's and now that now we know why you like yeah Lehane. I've never really talked to you about why you like Lehane so much, like on on this kind of level. It, so it's interesting to see because I'm yeah. not a big reader of crime fiction, but I've read Until Gwen, I've read Animal Rescue, and I get where you're coming from with that, and that's why I like it. And I, to be fair, I I don't I'm not a big fan of the genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, I probably need to read more of it anyway. Yeah. But I do like these stories, and you're right, it is because they find he finds the truth, and mm-hmm. that's something that regardless of what genre you're rewriting it. If you like yeah, a good story. That, that's what all writers should be seeking. You know, it's very... It's what we've learned yeah, in it's the very past three airy years on the airy, <laughs> at the same time, it is true. It's tr- yeah, it's completely true. You know, you've got to look for the truth in the characters, the situation, or the place. And that's something that Lehane does really well. He knows... He knows Boston like the back of his hand. Yeah. You know, he talks about side alleys and all this stuff. And... It creates such a deeper experience for the reader. Yeah, this is this is something we talked about in class where a lot of a lot of students uh, or a lot of will write in Amer- like an American yeah. accent or set their story in America because they have because in America there's guns and then you can have someone being well, shot. Well, I, I think as well a lot of that is that's what they're used to reading. So yeah, it goes exactly. To these, yeah. I did this myself. Yep. You know, and then I was questioned like, does it need to be set in America? And I was like. Oh, no, it doesn't. That all, makes no sense. Yeah, because all of a sudden you set yourself up for this incredibly hard task of authentic American dialogue, the way the culture, the American culture and lifestyle, yeah. um, cities you've never probably never mm-hmm. visited in your life. And you can tell, like we were saying, with someone who's been to war, who writes a war novel, yeah. someone who lives in Boston or has lived in a city or a place their whole life and can, can describe it um, and put it down on the page, it's so much more real and you get so much more of a, an image from it, from reading it. Yeah, so true. I mean, like, it it's fine. This this is what is helpful about our course. Mm. You know, it helps you find your way as a writer. Yeah. We've, we've been told so many times that you have to learn the rules before you can break yeah, them. Yeah, and I think that's so true. And it's true, because at first we all fought, kind of fought back against that. First yeah. year, I remember thinking, no, I don't do that way. But I was like, 
yeah, but you need to learn the foundations before you go exactly. to, before you go your own way. And one of the very first things we learned was kind of know your characters. Yeah. Know know what you're doing with it. Don't let someone ask you a question and about your story and be like, Oh, I don't know that. You need to know. It's the iceberg thing. Yeah. Whole, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I think Lehane does that really well. Mm-hmm. I mean, um I will just say as well, his he does have a short story collection called Coronado, which is for any JMU students listening, it's in the library. <laughs> okay, yeah, so, so you can read it for free. So you can read Brilliant. it for free. Um, yeah, it is is one of the great American writers, I would say. I mean, speaking about truth and genre fiction, I'm reading um, A Brief History of Seven Killings at the moment, mm-hmm. which is about... Um, that won the Man Booker Prize. Yeah, it won the Man Booker Prize in 2015. And it's about... It starts off with the attempted assassination of Bob Marley. Brilliant. And... It's it's very crime fiction, you know, pulpy, lots of guns going off and stuff. But it's there's so much more going on. Okay. And so that's a great example of how genre fiction can be so much more than just you know guns, bang, car chases, sexy <laughs> ladies, and all that jazz. Yes. So now we're going to talk and rip apart your favourite story, okay, which on. is A Perfect Day for Banana Fish by Jodie Salinger. Yeah. So why don't you tell me why you love this story, when you read it, why you read it. Well, tell, me, tell me why you read it first. Okay, I, I read it because we, one, Salinger's always been like a constant. I've never read, whatever I've read, although I've read little of his, when I read Capturing the Right, it had a profound effect on me because mm-hmm. I read it at the right age. Yeah. Uh, when I was like 19, when I when I wrote um, Fresme with Love and Squalor, yes. which is another story yeah. from Nine Stories. Which was that with Horatio Clare? That was with Horatio in lectures. We read that and we went through it, and I thought that was incredibly well done. And he mentioned offhandedly, he was like, "If you like it, if you like this, then you'll love Perfect Day for Banana Fish." So naturally, I went and read that. And this one, out of all all of his work he's he's written, uh, had had the biggest effect on me. And I think it's because nothing seems like it's given to me hmm. but at the end everything seems to have happened and i didn't and i had to go back and be like how did he do that it was it was like a magic trick yeah it, i i i got inside the character's head with i understood what happened at the end despite nothing really feeling like it had added up to that it, it was so I, well done the way i remember it was like not we're not going to give away the ending no we're not going to give away the ending cuz but it's Unexpected and inevitable at the same time. Exactly. Yeah, and you don't feel shortchanged. No. Uh, so yeah, that it was. It's just an incredibly well-crafted story, and um, we'll talk about more about like the outside of it. Yeah. So what 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 about it stuck with you then? It was it it was the this overarching sense of like futility throughout the whole thing. Futility. Yes. So futility. Futility as a person or Futil- as a writer. Both, I right. think, <laughs> because yeah. if you've been there. I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. Well, when you well, read something so good, it makes you angry. Yeah, like, oh, this is amazing, and I'm so <laughs> glad I found it and read it, but I'm never going to yeah, be that good. Fall into a bit of despair. Yeah, a bit of despair. Uh, but also futility in the character and mm. this the theme. He manages to give you a theme through like that stretches through the whole story. That's yeah. always there. It's always at the back, and he's never writing it down. But it's you know it's there, which is so impressive. Uh, so that's why that's why I love it so much. I think it's 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 just a fantastic short story. Uh, I jump. Shall I read the first? Yeah, paragraph? yeah, yeah. Well, you you mentioned to me there's 
something that sticks with you is the inter- incidental moments throughout yes, the story. Yeah, the just... little moments that make up this big problem. Yeah, so you're going to read the... I'll read the first paragraph and then explain a bit about the story. There were 97 New York advertising men in the hotel, and the way they were monopolising the long-distance lines, the girl in 507 had to wait from noon till almost 2.30 to get her call through. She used the time, though. She read an article in a women's pocket-sized magazine called Sex is Fun or Hell. She washed her comb and brush. She took the spot out of her skirt of her beige suit. She moved the button on her sax blouse. She tweezed out two freshly surfaced hairs in her mole. When the operator finally rang her room, she was sitting on the window seat and had almost finished putting lacquer on her nails of her left hand. She was a girl who for a ringing phone dropped exactly nothing. She looked as if her phone had been ringing continually ever since she'd reached puberty. Now... You get a real sense of the character in that moment. Already, right? yeah. And the the best part about this is this isn't even the main character. No, yeah. Uh, you find out about your main character through this conversation between his wife and her mother. Yeah, and so his, his mother-in-law. mother-in-law. Yeah. Uh, on, it's a phone conversation. It lasts pretty much half of the story. Mm-hmm. And you don't see your, the main character until halfway through, which when you find out what happens is even more impressive. Yeah. Uh, but it's the fact that through their dialogue, they're constantly interrupting people. No one's listening to each other. It feels yeah. like they're... Well, that, that's the theme yeah. throughout all of his stories, isn't it? Yeah, if it, it's, not being listened it's to. It's a character in a world he kind of doesn't understand or belong to. Well, that, that I think that's to do with Salinger and how he felt after he came back from the war. Is I that think right? so, yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I've noticed um, that most of his main characters are reflections of himself. Yeah. I mean, that's in Fresme with love and squalor. He it's se- definitely a reflection of himself, isn't it? Yeah, and he seeks yeah his actual soldier in yeah. that as well. He seeks solace in younger characters as well. Yeah, um, his younger sister in Catcher in the Rye for Esme with the for Esme, for Esme yeah. and also in this one with uh, the young girl. So I'll explain briefly the plot. Yeah, 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 run us through the so plot. So basically, it's about a couple on holiday. At, is it is it their honeymoon? Uh, or possibly. are they just on holiday? I can't remember. Either way, they're, they're, they're away together. Yeah. And there's a f- the, it starts with a phone call in the hotel room. Uh, his wife is is talking to her mother, and her mother's like, is he, is is he, he okay? okay? Yeah. yeah, and you is get this... Is he behaving yeah, himself? Yeah, is he behaving? Has any, any, anything happened mm. type thing? But you don't know what's happened, but you know that she's worried about him. Something's wrong. Our main character is called Seymour Class. Uh, he's part of the Glass family. I think he's written more about this Glass family. It's yeah. like a fictional family that's appeared they, in more than one story. Through, yeah. yeah. Uh, so Seymour Glass, um, and you you don't find out what's going on, but you you get this hint because she's like, why did he drive there? You shouldn't let him drive. Mm-hmm. Something about the trees. Something about maybe he tried to steer into some trees yeah. or something. So you nothing's told to you, but you know something's up. Yeah. So when you are introduced to him, he's on the beach, and like like in his other stories, the You've already esta- we've already established this world where everyone's cutting each other off. Nothing's he's he's already painted this picture of something almost obscure. It's, yeah. it's real life, but it's got a little like uncomfortable mm-hmm. twist on it. Yeah. Uh, so you establish this, and then you get Seymour Glass led on a beach, and he has this simple conversation with a young girl. She's same with all six the, years yeah, old around there. Uh, yeah, maybe a little yeah. bit older uh, around there. Yeah. And basically you get this sense that he's confiding and he sees innocence in her. Yeah. And he... Well, not just her as well. He talks about how he's been talking to another young girl. Yes, as yeah. As well. Yeah. 
So this this is something that recurs in yeah. Salinger's work, the confiding in children and yeah. the innocence of children. Yeah, exactly. And it's a really simple conversation they have, and it's it's just free from all the bullshit, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you, while while this goes on, there's a big metaphor in it about banana fish. They go into the ocean. He talks about banana fish, uh, this fictional fish that mm-hmm. swim into a hole. They they basically they what is it they eat they eat themselves to death because they feed on bananas they swim to a hole get too fat and then they can't escape type thing they can't fit through the door they can't leave and i think it's it it is a metaphor for this character's state of mind yeah so it's it's how he views the rest of the world i'm assuming yeah yeah that everyone's going to excess Mm -hmm. and all these things so you get yeah it is and you get this overriding sense so that there's there's these all these little things that happen, and then when you get to the end, you you expect it. Yeah, on the unexpected inevitability. Yeah, you you do ex- you you think oh, oh, oh. Yeah, you <laughs> get like the reaction. at first it's shock, and then you think back on the rest of the story, and, and you realise it makes perfect sense. Yeah, and that's why it's so clever. And the main reason I chose this story is that it reminded me of something I need to do, something. Something I I'm, think it's not just you. It, this yeah, is a problem I, with I a lot of writers. I don't want to speak for everyone, but, no, but I get what you mean. Yeah. It's something... This story, when it was first uh, published, yeah. or when he, when he first sent it off, he was, I think he was 28 when he first sent the manuscript off, mm-hmm. um, and he sent it to the New Yorker. Yeah. And I think the editor liked it, but he sent he basically sent said the original version was incomprehensible, <laughs> the, the moral <laughs> message of it, or the, ori- the yeah. point of it. The point of the story was incomprehensible. And... It wasn't until over a year later that it got published, yeah. which means he spent, obviously not every day, but he spent a year do, redrafting the story yeah. because he he because he wanted to make it, he wanted to get his point across, he wanted to make it this story, this final story that, that's become a classic, that's an amazing short story. Yeah. And well, it, it's often like held up as the perfect example of a short story. Exactly, and, it's, and, he, took, and he was working on it for over a year, and it's... You can tell because it's uh, not yeah. not one um, line seems there's, out. There's of not place. an ounce of fat on it. At there all. isn't. Yeah, it's been it's been built up and trimmed down, built yeah. up and trimmed down numerous times, and it's just work ethic, and that's something I think we I need definitely. I need once I've written something, once I've I need to go back and I need to put in the effort to make it what I want it to be. And I don't want any that'll do's. I think I find when I've finished the first draft. There's a sense of relief there that I've finally yeah. finished it, so I can leave it now. But we don't realise is the, all that's the hard the work yet to that's come. The, that's the yeah, beginning. The hard work yet to come. To be honest, I find when I have really worked at redrafting something, that can be exciting. Yeah, we're getting there. We're finally getting to the point. I think where we, you know, it's like, I think uh, Jim Frail, one of our lecturers, uses the statue um, metaphor a lot about you know carving it away and. I think I think the best way of saying it is is getting the block of marble into the studio. That's your first draft. Yeah. The redrafting yeah. is actually the Starting chipping away chip and away. finding it. Yeah, the first draft is a, just an incomplete yeah. slab of. Yeah, you're right. I mean, as Hemingway said, all first drafts are shit. <laughs> but a lot of the time, it's taken that much effort to get it out. Yeah. That you're just like, I can't do that. Yeah. And maybe it is a case of. You know, putting your first draft to one side for a little bit. I mean, that's what I find works. Yeah, for me. I do. Put it in a drawer for a, for yeah. a month and then come back to it with come fresh eyes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 
So yeah, you're completely right. And this is like a great example of that. It's what what rewards you can reap from the hard work you put in. And that is immortality, I guess, yeah. in the literary world. You put work into a story, even a short story, because it's even though it's not a novel, it's not it's it is a couple of thousand words. But he's put so much work into it, and you can tell when yeah, you read you really it, can. you can completely tell. So that's why I chose it as my short story, and that's why it's one of my favorite short stories. Horatio Claren. Um He's a novelist, travel writer, journalist, radio producer, and a lecturer at John Moores University. Um, so I was wondering first if I could ask you about your childhood, because you grew up on a sheep farm in the Black Mountains in Wales. Just how that was for you, because I know your first book was about that. Yeah, it was ace. Uh, really exciting, completely free, um, sort of doused in nature and, and views um, and adventure really I mean it was very primitive, it was kind of subsistence sheep farming, we didn't really have any money we had a lot of sheep um, we were very high up so we got cut off in winter when it snowed and we had dogs um, it was me and my brother and my mum and it was fantastic, I loved it it was not uh, free of kind of fear um, it was quite exposed uh, and primitive and there was things like no TV and stuff but um no, it was a wonderful childhood, uh, and it gave me a feeling for adventure. My mum kind of said that's how it is. Yeah. Mm. So, writing a memoir, that's a very personal thing to do for your first book. Why, why did you decide to do that first? Because uh, I knew I was going to write. That was all the story I had. That was what I had to say. And I thought of, at first it would be an autobiographical-type novel, and I just didn't think there was any point changing people's names, I mean, or changing people's characters. The story was much better told straight. So I fell into memoir by accident because that's what they call it when you do that. Uh, but it starts as a novel, really. I mean, it's two characters in the third person, uh, fairly omniscient narrator. And, but the dialogue uh, and the scenes were just as reconstructions of the story. My mother had told me about her, her meeting my dad. So it starts as, as fiction, essentially, or heavily kind of fact-based fiction until... I come along, and then it's more like memoir. But I try and keep out of it, actually. Mm. So you said it was very adventurous growing up. Yeah. Is that is that why you went into this travel writing where you you know go on long journeys and I things suppose, like that? I mean, yeah, I suppose I'm disposed to it. I, I do love action and travel. My mum, although we had no money, used to put us on a coach every year to, from Newport to London, and then another one to Italy. Uh, and I loved those coach journeys, and we'd stay with a friend of hers and then come coaching back, and then trains, we did it. And I just loved all that. Uh, so it felt very natural to write about, um, you know, when my time came to write travel, I, for example, I much preferred doing that than writing, because essentially a travel piece is just a feature. It could be about asparagus, it could be about anything. You're just describing what it is. Uh, and it could be about a book, in which case it's a book review, you know. Um, and kind of reviewing place when I came to do that, it just felt natural and, and a home for me rather than, I do review books, uh, but it, you know, it, it takes more work in, in a way, um, more concentration because it doesn't come as easily. Hmm. So journalism, where did you first start getting into the journalism and the reviewing and the travel pieces? Uh, I was an English student with a 2-1 and I wrote to loads of newspapers 
uh, offering myself a work experience. I did some in Devon, uh, <laughs> that didn't end very well. Um, but I learned a lot, it was good. And then I trained in the end on, I got into a training scheme, Newcastle Journal and Chronicle, uh, Trinity Mirror editorial scheme that was, which was three months, absolutely hardcore, um, shorthand law, colour writing, news, tabloid values, um, <laughs> phone hacking, uh, you know, it was a really good course. Um, and then I didn't really want to do it. Uh, I kind of got disillusioned. And that didn't end very well either. Was that ethically? Uh, yeah, kind of. I mean, I found it fantastic. And I thought there wasn't really... A, you weren't really there for a higher purpose than to get the story. And mm. if that meant turning somebody over hacking their phone, I didn't have a problem with that. I had a problem with the whole direction of the tabloid narrative. Um, and even we were being trained by the Mirror Group, so it wasn't that bad. But of course, all my friends went off to work on The Sun. But I just didn't want to be a tabloid journalist, really. I, I thought I'd much rather tell stories about them in a way, so I, st I went and worked in a pub and started writing a terrible novel. Um, and then I realised what was in the pub was much more interesting than, than what was in the novel. Um, and then I turned 25 and I applied as a researcher to the BBC, and I got in radio because I had some news training and I knew about books. So radio's been quite a big part of your life, Yeah, was, that was it then, for sort of 10 years until the present day, really. I mean, I, I was on staff at BBC more or less for sort of seven, eight years. Um, and then I left that because it stopped being fun after the Hutton Inquiry and because I thought if I don't go now when I've got no family, I'll never go. Mm. Uh, and I want to be a writer. So when I, got, when I sold my first book, when they accepted the manuscript, I handed in my resignation. So the, all the travelling you've done, is that something that you've felt compelled to do? Is that... Has that compulsion stopped a bit now? Or? No, I've, I've, I've found ways to do it. I mean, I said yes a lot to newspapers. That was great in magazines, but that's only once or twice a year, maybe four or five times. Uh, all the rest of it I've done by thinking up ideas for books that involve travelling and selling the ideas, uh, which there's, they, you then get a cheque to enable mm. you to pull it off. Um, so, yes, I know I've, I've got no diminished hunger for it at all. <laughs> I absolutely love it. I love it. it. It's different when you've got a child because you don't want to be away, mm. particularly during the wonderful years when they're growing up at the moment. It's just heavenly. Uh, and so I try and take him and his, his mother whenever I can. But uh, if I have to do it, I have to do it. Mm. So you've done... What, what's the most interesting thing that you think you've done over your travel writing? Bloody hell, that is a good question. Um... Personally, the most interesting I said, uh, was journeying across Africa for a single swallow because I was still very young, really. Mm. I mean, I was 34, 35. Uh, that changed me and changed my circumstances. Uh, personally, I suppose the most interesting was the ships because I just loved the sea and I loved ships. That was absolutely fascinating. But in terms of actually work that I've done, the ships came in turned interesting because then I, I became involved in campaigns for seafarers and recognition and, tr and good treatment of seafarers and I feel that's been valuable which is you know a key indicator of interest is value mm. um, but then sometimes just little pieces like I did one for the Financial Times about um, Turkmenistan and, and uh, you know you don't learn a lot in a way but then nobody knows anything about Turkmenistan mm. so I think that was for some reason that struck me as being worth doing because I talk to people who can't normally speak, you know, and who aren't yeah, normally who aren't heard. heard yeah. Who aren't heard. Yeah. So with the um, the shift, that was a book where you spent a year on cargo. It ships. wasn't a year; like oh. it was a two a two month long oh. voyage and then like half a month short voyage. But yeah, I spent about two years getting it all together. So how was that? Was that? I mean, being stranded out on the sea. It was fantastic. It was absolutely amazing. It was a proper a proper adventure. You can't go wrong mm. in going to sea. I mean. 
The Voyage of the Beagle is one of the great travel books, and Darwin says at the end of it, and I think possibly repeats it at the end of The Origin of Species, uh, for a young man, in a sexist way, there's nothing better you, you can do with your time than go on a, a long sea voyage, because uh, it will teach you so many things, and, uh, and I found that. It was, it was funny, it was frightening, it was awe-inspiring, uh, it was deeply educational, Wonderful, and I'm going back on an icebreaker in uh, at the reading week actually in February, uh-huh. um, round Finland uh, in the dark with a bunch of very taciturn allegedly Finns <laughs> uh, for another book. And I think you know I can't wait, mm. I really can't wait. So, what is it that grabs you for a story? Then is it like you said? Is it the idea of going to a certain place, or is there something that has to click for you? That's a good question because often now you don't they don't really know anymore. They, they, when I started, a newspaper would say, right, the story is. Uh, you eight best things in Sicily, so you go off and do that. But now they tend to just book a load of hotels or the court operator does and temples or something, and then you have to bring back a story, and they'll, they'll send you emails like, "What was the story?" And you're like, "Well, you never said because you didn't have one." <laughs> um, so what I do when I get there is I ask about politics, about myth, about tradition, about pressures. Like, what are they worried about now? Mm. You know, on the streets of Chetina in Tamil Nadu, what actually bothers the man in the street? What does he believe? What's his panoply of ghosts and gods you know how's the world changing for him and you could you never fail to get a story if you're asking those mm. questions so do you find it easier to go in with an open mind and find the story there or well i mean no research you do is wasted mm. so reading like my dad's an incredible he was an amazing journalist and an incredible reader when he goes on holiday he just knows everything before he gets there the whole place is history um i do i don't I'm, i don't really do that in to that extent at all i read up sure but uh, I find, I mean, uh, to be honest, what you're bringing in essentially is your ignorance and your mm. curiosity, your willingness to, to, to displace your ignorance. So I, ju- I more or less turn up and just ask questions of everyone from, from the first moment. So when you're doing pieces whilst you're abroad, are you writing long form there or is it all notes? Uh, I write a bit of both. If it's an interview, like if it's like yes, mm. then I'll be taking as much as I can down in, in kind of uh, block capitals quick uh, of their answers, just the key bits. And then uh, if it's description, if we're traveling, you know, I've done hours and hours, days and weeks in the backs of land cruisers, and you just naturally describe what the landscape's like, what the people are like, what the weather's doing, kind of what it's like. And then so you end up with a kind of uh, mixture of long and notes, and then I tend to just agonize a bit over the first line and the mm. first paragraph, and then basically write it. So that, that once you're in, you're yeah. in. Yeah, once you've got this stuff, yeah. yeah. So I was, I was just wondering, because you've written a mix of fiction yeah. and non-fiction, which are you finding yourself leaning towards more? Um, it's that's a tricky one. I, I don't. Um, I don't. Somebody asked me what, why did you decide to move into children's writing. I thought I didn't decide to move anywhere. I just wrote a you know a story. Mm. Um, it, it fiction is marvelous because you it comes straight out of you really and out of your lived experience and any thoughts you happen to have had. So you don't really do anything except sit and write. Whereas non-fiction is much more like making a radio feature. You've got to have the voices, you've, you've got to have the research, and and obviously you need the structure. Um, and my kind of stuff is very easy because it's chronological, effectively travel. So you start and you end, and there's an arc more or less in between them. Um, I, I don't really have preference, to be honest. They're, they're, they're both great hmm. things to do. So I was just... This is you can have, might have to pull back here, try and find this answer. But mm. who do you think the most interesting person that you've managed to meet is over your journeys? Well, I suppose that would be somebody who'd said something that I just hadn't seen coming, or was a certain way that I didn't 
didn't know about at all, had no prior conception of. There was a woman called Cosmbango. She lived in, she's uh, Himba. She lives in Namibia, in um, the Hartman Valley, which is totally desolate, desert, boiling desert. And to the north is a river full of crocodiles, horribly hungry crocodiles, <laughs> famously aggressive. And she has a sacred fire, which is actually not a fire, it's, a, it's like three stones, and there's an imaginary fire, a sacred fire in the middle of it. She has a hut, she has her chickens, and she's under the stars. And I did find being alongside her, uh, and just, because I was with the Bushmen as well, but I didn't really formally interview them. Um, being alongside those people is most interesting because mm. they live in a totally different era. I mean, basically the Neolithic, and uh, they know as more than we do. You know, mm. That's obvious. So they, they, those, those are wonderful. Yeah. Just switching to your lecturing now. How have you found that? Has that influenced you as a writer? Do you think? Uh, I, I don't. I've gone for a long time thinking that teaching doesn't actually help you write. Mm. Um, quite the opposite. But it, it makes you read a lot of course which is good mm. uh, it makes you think about good practice which is good um, I haven't been aware of it if it's happened it's happened basically mm. subconsciously but the range of your influences increases so it definitely changes and also it's so interesting listening in the workshop bit where people somebody reads and mm. everybody else listens I find the impact of text on an audience fascinating which is why I'm very keen that everyone reads well so that doesn't get in the way of it and what works for students and how they react to it is interesting because sometimes it's exactly opposite of what I think. And I realize it's sometimes it's time, uh, sometimes it's influence, sometimes I know that it's been done before, mm. and sometimes I just don't know, didn't see that they think like that, um, which is fascinating. Being surprised. Yeah, well, it's uh, another way, it's generational as well. I mm. find that very interesting, what, what works across the lines and what doesn't. So how did you find your way into lecturing then? Um, I w was in t um, teaching. I mean, when you write, when you publish, if you if it goes well, you get asked to teach, basically. Uh, mm. So I taught Arvon courses and stuff, and then we moved to Italy, and I taught. I taught in my old school as a uh, as a writer in residence, like schools that kicked you out suddenly love you. Although <laughs> that one didn't kick me out. Um, uh, and then I was just teaching in Italy, where you don't need any qualifications. Really, I was teaching in the IB, which I'd done, uh, and I built up shed loads of teaching experience at IGCSE and IB. You know as much as anybody so although I'm completely unqualified I'm really experienced um, and then I was doing guest lectures back here for different universities and then you speak at festivals and so it just became natural really I, I felt like I've, I've probably done it for a long time mm. I, I taught in my year off in France actually when I was 17 18 um, so yeah it's just the other it's the other half of me really mm. okay so I'm gonna pass over to Lois now thank you for an excellent interview really full of unexpected questions well done Hey, Horatio. <laughs> okay, I'm s we're switching now over to me. Um, I'm going to talk to you kind of selfishly because I want to be a children's writer. <laughs> These answers yeah. for me, but yeah. for anyone else who's interested. Okay. Um, you kind of answered this question a minute ago um, about, I was going to ask why did you decide to write a children's book? Well, you said it just kind of, is it something Is it something you had in the back of your mind for yeah, a while? Yeah, I definitely had in the back of my mind. I think everybody does. When you look at the success of children's writing as a sector, you think, like, there's money in there. And, you know, I am a... I've got to survive. Um, I'm quite driven by. I'm not, I've ne I never do it for the money, but when I'm owed money or if there's a negotiation over money, I tend to be quite fierce because mm -hmm. I think you've got to fight for every cent. They taught me that at the BBC. If you don't ask, you don't get. But that wasn't why I got into it. I got into it because um, I sort of thought it would be nice one day to write for children. Then we had a child, and I suddenly realised I had stuff to say, like really important stuff I wanted to say to him about 
you know, what I thought at the time might be bipolar or uh, depression. I, we've certainly got depression in the family, and I, I needed ways to tell a story, and I thought it would have more, it would have interest, you know, and then it's such fun. Um, so in a quite a bleak period, I didn't want to move back from Italy to West Yorkshire at all. Um, it, I wouldn't be here if it was up to me, um, although I'm glad I am. But uh, I wrote this story that made me laugh about you know, a man with problems, sad problems, mm-hmm. and his, his son who helps with them. Uh, I, I had a question about Aubrey and the Terrible You, because oh, yeah. I've read it, and I thought it was um, a very delicate way to look at... I, a lot of children's books do deal with larger um, social issues, sometimes very serious ones. Mm. Um, was it hard for you to find a delicate way of tackling such a heavy subject in children's writing? No, because it's a nice thing. You don't, there is no such thing. It's only books. They don't know what will work. They know what has and uh, I didn't actually find it difficult at all. It's much harder, like writing about my parents' divorce was psychologically much harder than writing about depression. Because mm. um, I've kind of done it before in nonfiction anyway. Um, no, it was fun. Um, it, it, it wasn't threatening or exposing. Uh, and actually, you say delicate, but what was interesting in a way was, you know, we had the, there's a picture when Jim, the father, takes goes up on the moors to commit suicide and he takes uh, pills and a bottle of whiskey and there's a picture of him in the book and he's all huddled up in the beam of a torch or being his mother discovering him just in time and they didn't want that picture and my brave brave editor at Firefly who was an ex-journalist herself and no milksop at all, amazing woman said that we don't want that, it's too heavy I think uh, um, but we thought, Jane and I thought it had to stay um, and it was obviously the right decision Penny was right to change her mind uh, and I, you do get that quite a bit um, people worrying about what children can take and how delicate you are. But then if you look at young adult, all the gloves are off. Young adult is full of you know, rape, sex, drugs, uh, horror. Um, but this is for quite small children. This is for more like precocious six to, to you know, yeah. relax 12. So, yeah, uh, yeah it was, um, I, I, I knew they'd be fine with it. And they were, yeah. and what's your favourite children's book and why? I think one? it's Danny the Champion of the World, probably. Okay. Well, how come? I don't know. I mean, I love Cannonball Simp as well. I really love Simp, which is for younger children. And I love all of the Tintin books. I properly, you know, there's, there's the one in there where Asterix, it's the Golden Sickle, I think, and Oblix are going into a deep, dark wood on the way home, and they've been warned not to go into the wood because it's got bandits and wolves in it. And they have immediately have a bet, which do you think we'll meet first, bandits or wolves? And they meet a guy who's been treed by some wolves and they, they smack the wolves and Oblix is pissed off because Asterix said he'd see wolves first. And he has. And the guy comes down from the tree and they say, what are you doing in the forest? And he says, in a really small voice, I'm a bandit. And Oblix <laughs> grabs him and goes, why couldn't you have turned up earlier? And that was um, kind of defined my attitude to travel writing. Uh, like that's how you deal with it. When they say it's bandits and wolves, you're like, oh, which one will we see first? <laughs> um, so... I love those. They were quite formative. But my brother and I grew up on shed loads of books and then just playing the games that the books inspired outside with sticks as a consequence of having loads of children's books and no TV. All mates. Um, just, you know, <laughs> we're up a hill. So, uh, but Dan's Chapter of the World is, is kind of, you know, I've done a lot of those things. Yeah, I was going to say, all yours. Driven have- a car without being allowed to drive, you know, as a, that's the sort of, it was a very useful primer in a way that you could be good and still fight <laughs> or, or you, know, uh, you know have a go at it uh, what's the best advice you've been given as a writer from maybe someone you looked up to that you've met or 
coming up in the industry? Loads. Um, you must finish. Tony Saint taught me that outside the London Library one day. Uh, you must finish, otherwise you're not doing anything, just piddling around. Um, David Hughes always said, let the light in. Which I meant to say to you when you were having a bad time with that story, that you did you did pull around. Yeah. Uh, David, I went, went to see him once in deep depression, and I said I can't write, and I meant I couldn't even write essays. And he was he actually taught at the Iowa Writers' Workshop, David, I mean, the, the sort of the, the mother load, the source of it all, of the whole industry, in fact. And he said, um, you just have to let the light in. And I just thought, yeah, he's right. <laughs> and then wait for it. Don't try and force it. Go for a walk. Auden said, go for a walk, have a pint if you want to write a poem. Um, what else? Really, really good advice. In the end, you can't trust anyone, I think. I don't think you can even... I mean, if, if you like your editor, what comes back will be visibly better than what you sent, even if it's just a small change. But there's a lot of the time, most of the time, you have to ignore them. You have to do your thing. And I don't mean piss editors of, you know, of publishing houses off. I mean covers, uh, titles, cuts, changes, strengthening it, weakening it, language. Uh, they're not going to get that point, which you get in newspaper articles. This is going off a bit. Uh, I think uh, you have to really fight to get your stuff out the way you want it after you've taken good advice. Uh, and a wonderful thing about getting on in the business is that I've realised that my dad, for example, is just the perfect reader. So everything I write will go to him, and he'll come. It'll come back really quickly, and it will say a few things, not many, which will really help. Um, but otherwise, unless you're very lucky and you find someone who's really in tune with what you're doing, what you'll get is that they will improve the text for the market, but they may not. That may not improve the text, the art that you're attempting to create. Okay. So you, when you said you write. Um with your, do you write with your father in mind? Because I no, okay. no, not at all. Do you no. write with anyone in mind? Well, kind of listen, a reading version of me, the version of me that will read it back tomorrow and think it's, you know, this is shit. What were you thinking? <laughs> you know, what is this? Yeah. Um, or yeah, it's it's a it's an imagined audience that's partly me, okay. it's, it's, and it's a single hearer. So it's a yeah, it's a single hearer. So as a lecturer here or anywhere where you've taught writing. What's one thing you like to leave with your with students? Like once you've left them at the end of term and they're out of your hands now, is there any is there any one defining thing you'd like to leave them with or to keep in mind um, when going forward as a writer? Well, I mean, subliminally, the thing you want to leave students with, I think, it is a mixture of hunger um, to go and do it, and confidence that they know the ways in which it is done, um, and and some kind of I mean, the, the, the belief, the ambition, the drive has really all got to come from them. Uh, but what you're trying to do is instill a confidence that, you know, that might take waiting or it might take doing other things. So it's confidence and also um, belief. You know, they, they ought to believe they can do it. Yeah. They ought to believe they can do it. And uh, to to round off this interview, I've, um, I've asked this to, we've asked this to everyone we've talked to and... I, I can't even imagine what yours would be, but we ask him, um, if you couldn't be a writer, if you weren't a writer, what else would you do? If I wasn't a writer or a teacher? Yes. Um, I would have liked to have been a spy. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind um, of what... <laughs> a diplomat. Um, I would have liked to have done the kind of thing that my friend Robin's doing. He does projects, so he just takes a load of lifeboats to the Mediterranean, 
for example. I love boats, and ju- and he just basically smuggles people across. I mean, it's not smuggling; it's assisting refugees. But that's what okay. he does. Uh, so slightly more out in the world sort of things, I think. Okay, the spirit of adventure. I knew it'd be in that slightly. Yeah, yeah. And, and as I get older, I'm much happier with the idea of returning to sheep farming, which is my ultimate destination because my mum has this farm still, and uh, I won't be able to get rid of it. So. So you can write more um, memoirs. I'll be from, uh, <laughs> writing spy novels. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much Not for doing this ratio. Thank you for your questions. Thank, thank you. Your time. Cheers. Okay, so today we've got Christy Smith. He's going to be reading his short story, Lucy. So, Christy, tell us where did you get your inspiration for this story from? Uh, it was something that uh, me and my brother had been talking about, something that he kind of wanted me to pursue. as something that was more um, more graphic than I'd normally do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that came out of both of us reading Neil Gaiman quite a bit. Yeah. And he can be quite vulgar at times. And um, he could be like that. And so I think that's what, something that he wanted me to try out. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he helped me out with the idea, and then I, I ended up writing it. It's about a relationship as well. Is that something you write about a lot? Um, I don't think it's something I write about massively. It's not a reoccurring theme. Mm. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I, I'd usually write a love story like this. Yeah. But I'm I'm happy that now that I have written a love story, it's not your it's not it's your not standard. it's not your traditional yeah, love no, story yeah. at all. As the listeners will find out. Um, so you said Neil Gaiman, and they're not what you usually read. So what no. what is it you, we'd find you reading usually? I mean, I do I love short stories, and that's why I kind of I, I, I enjoy Neil Gaiman. Although I'm not a big fantasy guy, but mainly it's it's people like Raymond Carver who I love, mm-hmm. and I love um, Sherwood Anderson and, and and people like that. Real life short stories, I guess you would say. Yeah. So short stories is your main. Short, avenue. Definitely, yeah, yeah. It's it's what I enjoy writing the most, and especially since coming to uni, it's been what I pursue in kind of distancing, uh, distancing myself from poetry. Yeah. And and moving on to short story writing. Okay, that's interesting. So as you mentioned, uni third year. Yeah. Plans for the future? Um, I'm hoping to join the master's course here at LGMU yeah. as well. Uh, you know, I really I like being in the the kind of an environment that's so con- conducive to creativity. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I want to make the most of that, I guess. Yeah. So uh, I've found myself that coming to uni has made me a better writer. Would you say that's true for oh, you as well? definitely. I, I see a definite progression mm. in, uh, in what I've been writing. You know, I can, I can look at stories I've written only a year ago and see that there has been definite progress. And growth, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so now we're going to have you read Lucy. Thanks very much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Okay. Christy Smith, ladies and gentlemen. I met Lucy in a crowded house, in a crowded city, in our crowded world. What were the odds? There's so much I've forgotten from those pre-Lucy years, besides the fact that everywhere seemed so full. Full of people with hats that didn't suit them, hats that did. People with long legs, beautiful fingers. People with high aspirations or bad intentions. Wholesale tins of people packed into cities. Too many to know them all, too many to care. Then God said, let there be Lucy, and there was Lucy, and I saw Lucy, and it was good. It was the party of a friend. I had drunk too much and left my braces hanging loose by my legs, my polo half hung out my waistband. I could still taste my last five cigarettes smoked in succession. I could smell myself, I felt so unappealing, a wet towel left on an unvacuumed floor. I was 18 but didn't feel it. Before Lucy I knew nearly nothing, and then I knew nothing at all. She had short green hair, a nose piercing surrounded by infected swells of red and pink, a mood ring that turned from black to brown to orange. 
If it told the truth, she refused to show it. Her lips gave the impression of a smile, and when she spoke, it was as if we had known each other for a lifetime. Hey, handsome, like what you see? She gestured toward my hand. I had been scrolling through the music on an iPhone that wasn't mine and had been plugged into the speakers all night. She suggested I pick a song. The room didn't seem so crowded after that. All that was left was Lucy, me, and Dusty Springfield. She looked like Germany, all angles bent and broke and beautiful. She rested elbow on knee, arm raised with a cigarette hung loose from long fingers. She looked like Nosferatu, like Eric Heckle woodcutters, like a swastika. Her voice was restless and warm as she spoke about things she had seen and done, a history of the world according to Lucy. As guests became too tired or too drunk, they left, as did Dusty, making room for Aretha, then Etta, then Marvin. We turned from shared interests to recommendations. I played her the Hot Eight Brass Band cover of Sexual Healing. She showed me the Slits cover of Heard It Through the Grapevine. The night went on like this for hours, till we were happily smothered under a blanket of each other's songbooks. My life began in that salt-filled room when she took out a Swiss Army knife, silver and sharp, sliced off my right ear, sliced off hers, and with a needle and thread switched and stitched them back on. It was all pizza boxes and roses after that. We heard the world through each other's ears. Her sounds were mechanical, mine were muted. One day on the cemetery swing, she read to me from Ginsburg, Kerouac and Burroughs. They answered questions I had never thought to ask. I read to her from Keats, Byron and Blake. She saw a lot of herself in them. I did too. I reached into her mouth and twisted out her violent tongue, dry and stained from dirty words. I switched it out for my own, pinker, fresher, innocent. They found their place in our mouths, settled in and stuck. Every week we'd go to the movies. The place was near derelict, but had been saved by hipster powers. You'd occasionally see one, vintage moustache and turtleneck. They saw the same films as us, but not in the same way. They never really saw The Seventh Seal, Sunset Boulevard or Citizen Kane. But we did, scooping out each other's eyeballs and wearing them like 3D glasses. Oh, it was beautiful. The years went by unnoticed. School was out, friends got married and had kids. Loved ones died, empires rose and fell. Lucy and I passed through, hand in hand, eyes and ears and tongues on only each other. Her sharp German bends curved with time. Her hair changed colour over and over till it settled on grey. Her nails grew, were cut, then grew back again. We spent every moment in each other's company, cutting pieces from ourselves. We didn't keep everything, some things you can afford to lose. We kept her breast, we kept my torso, we kept her lips, we kept my tongue, we kept her ankles, we kept my elbows. We combined our heart's efforts, and we became one. And now you are driving, late at night. The radio is on, but you aren't listening. Your seatbelt is tight against your chest, uncomfortably so. You have somewhere to be, but nowhere to go. It is hot, your aircon is broken. You are alone. The headlights are shining, and for a moment they illuminate the figure ahead. Your chest becomes tighter. You feel a cold pass through you, hard and jolting. You will think it is hideous and you may scream, but we don't think we're hideous. We're the most beautiful thing in the world.